0: It's uh, not for everyone, but I think um, I think a lot of people would like to be an author. I, I, I'd like to write a book if I ever had anything to say. I, I have a couple of uh, titles in mind, though. Would you Would you like to hear uh, what they are? <laughs> well, well, first, uh, how about this one: uh, the three most spiritual Christians in the world today and how I led the other two to the Lord. To be followed closely by the book entitled Humility and how I attained it. And you have to underline the I in the title. Uh, The first time I heard someone mention those improbable titles, I laughed out loud, and they still make me giggle after all these years. And they usually get a chuckle from others. Just like that old country song, It's Hard to Be Humble. I won't sing it for you. I know you're glad for that. But you know the song that goes, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. How do you not laugh at that? You know, the obvious mocking of pride, for some reason, just tickles the funny bone of most people. We laugh at it. and Humor is is really a good gift from God, and we like to laugh. But we don't laugh when we see that self-aggrandizing pride for real, do we? It's only funny when it's mocked. There's nothing at all humorous when we meet it in another human being. It's just plain sad. And we've all heard that Saul, when someone uh, is wrapped up in themselves, they make a very small package. And the corollary to that is as is their pride continually consumes them so they get smaller over time. It's only when we take our eyes off of ourselves and so we see the need of others and then pour our lives into them that we grow as a person. And you can invest in the things of this world and you can reap some benefits from that, but all of this the good things and the bad things, uh, uh, wealth used to bless others or wealth hoarded homes, kept for family and friends or houses owned for status, all of that will pass away. Of this world, only that which is alive will last forever. Pride keeps us from seeing that as well as making us small. And there's a certain kind of pride, too, which poses a particular danger for most people in this room. Theologians refer to it as spiritual pride while the world scorns it, calling it the holier-than-thou attitude. It's when a believer or someone who claims to be a believer begins to look down on others and starts to think that he or she somehow is better than some other person or group of people. That's spiritual pride. And it's pride of the worst kind, and it is absolutely deadly. The text we're going to look at today addresses that very issue, and in the process, it allows us to see into the future, to know what God will do, even though we don't exactly know when he will do it. So I want to invite you to join me once again in the book of Romans, again in chapter 11, where we're going to be considering verses 25 through 33, and you can join me in your Bibles, or we'll have the text, the message up on the screen on either side of now, Paul has, uh, in the previous passage, already made mention of this kind of pride and warned, warned against it. And what he does here is he makes, in a sense, God's wisdom and work the focus of our thought. And that certainly will help keep our uh, pride in check. And Paul reveals a mystery which God purposes to use in our lives also, at least in part, to guard our hearts against that spiritual pride. Now, before we look at the text, we need to know what the Bible means by the term mystery. It doesn't mean mysterious or furtive or cagey or cryptic or shadowy or sneaky. What the Bible means by that word is that there is a truth which is real and solid and understandable, but we could never have deduced it on our own. We could never figure it out on our own steam. But once God reveals it in his time, naturally, we can understand it. In fact, that's exactly why he reveals it, so we can know it and act on it. And this mystery which Paul is going to tell us about has always been a part of God's plan. But no human being knew it until the time was right and God revealed it to his people through Paul. Now, Paul was privileged to know a number of mysteries, things that no one else knew, things which are a part of our Bible because God revealed them to Paul if you'd been a part of our Sunday school class the few last few weeks, you would have been part of our discussion concerning the time that was Paul was caught up into the presence of God. And you would also have heard us as we considered and talked over the difference between Paul's report and message from that experience and what is often claimed to be a word from God by some people in our day. In any case, because God revealed these mysteries to him, Paul knew things that other people, even other disciples, did not know. But we know them because they have been recorded for us in the Scripture. So in verse 25 Paul of our text today, Paul tells us about one of those mysteries. And he tells us three things about it. We're going to look at each of those three things in turn. So just let me read it to you, starting in verse 25 and through the beginning of verse 26. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. And here comes the mystery now. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The first part of this mystery, which is no longer a mystery because it's been revealed to us, is that Israel has been partially hardened. And then second, this... Hardening will remain until, well, let's just say a certain milestone is reached by Gentile believers. And finally, the third thing we're told is that when this milestone has been reached, Israel will once again take her place in God's design. So we want to look at each one of those in turn. First, uh, Israel has experienced a partial, hard, a partial hardening. And we know from what Paul has already written that Israel had stubbornly and over time ignored God's entreaties for them to return to him with all of their heart. They had hardened their own heart. We also know that at a certain point, and we don't ever know when that point is reached, God accelerates that hardening as an act of judgment uh, on an already hard heart. God, in in some manner or using some mechanism, makes the heart harder. And then, too, we know from previous passages that this hard-heartedness had reached a certain point. We might even say had reached a tipping point so that Israel, as a nation, was set aside. God, could no longer use it as a tool to reach the world. And instead, he has turned to the Gentiles, and he's now using the church to take his message to the lost. Now, there's one other thing to point out here, and it really is extremely important. This hardening that has happened to Israel is not total. It's only partial. And that means not only that some Jews still come to Christ, and that's obviously true, but it also means, and more importantly means, there is still hope for Israel to return to her former state of usefulness, to once again become a tool in the hand of God Almighty to reach the world. The hardness is not total, which brings us to the second part of the mystery that's been revealed. This hardness will last until the full number, or until this milestone is reached by the Gentiles. And our text um, puts it this way. It says until the full number of Gentiles come in. Now, from that translation, you can almost imagine, can't you, that uh, cliched picture of Peter, I should say St. Peter, standing at the pearly gates uh, calling out, Ten more! We have room for ten more Gentiles. But the Greek text doesn't say anything at all about numbers. It simply says when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now that could indicate a particular number. That's why some translations use it. But I can't help but think that if that's what Paul meant, that's what he would have said, a full number would come in. The fact that he didn't makes me believe that he had something else in mind. And and as a matter of fact, usually when that term fullness is used, it means either a kind of a maturity or completeness, or especially in a relationship to God, it means a life full of the presence of God. I believe that the most natural reading here holds out for us a kind of hope that the church can become so full of God's Spirit, his life can flow through us so freely, that we can walk so closely with him, that the world around us cannot then help but see that God is in us and through us. They may not like it. They may hate us for it, but they will know that we belong to him. Like like a day on which the clouds hide the sun, yet we can still know it's shining by the light that's there. But when those clouds roll away, all doubt is removed. The sun is there, though we can only glance at. So will it be that when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, There will no longer be any doubt that God lives in us. But you know, that hasn't happened yet. The fullness has not yet come in. Now, I don't know why I can't give you a reason explaining why we haven't reached that place of fullness yet. I mean, there's some things we can point to which might help explain the delay. I mean, the gospel has to be preached to the whole world before the end will come. And we're still in the process of taking it everywhere, aren't we? But in in that respect, the world has suddenly got very much smaller because we have reached so many. And then, too, Israel had to be destroyed and carried off to the nations again and then be brought back into the land and the nation had to be reestablished, which has happened. And so in that respect, the state, at times and in places. I mean, isn't it possible? Isn't it possible that the life of God flowed through this or that church or in this or that region or country as a kind of rehearsal of that coming day? But not all the churches in all the world had reached such a fullness. And maybe, just maybe, for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in, there has to be a group of believers from every corner of the world and taken out of every religious community. And I've mentioned to you my own personal hope that this country might be that nation which will make Israel jealous. Maybe it's just the church that the scriptures are talking about, but the Bible says a nation we are were not a nation, but a little over 200 years ago, we became one, and the gospel has shone out from us ever since. Yet we know from the text, at the right time, in God's time, when all the pieces are in place, and God's people have humbled themselves before God, The church around the world will shine like the bride of Christ and all will know without any doubt that we belong to him. The fullness will have come in. Which brings us to the third part of this mystery which has been revealed. When the fullness of the Gentiles uh, has come in, all Israel will be uh, saved that's a result of God's filling with the gentiles. The Israelites or using today's term the Israelis will see it and they will turn to God. You see we serve a redemptive purpose for the Jewish people. Specifically They will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. That's what verses 26 and 27 say. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant. With them, when I take away their sins. When Jesus returns, he will return to Zion. But when he became a man, he came from Zion. And the covenant was made when he died on the cross. At that point, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the Jews will see and they will know that Jesus is the Messiah. And they will once again take their place in reaching the lost world world for God. God has revealed a mystery to us. He's shown us his truth. He's disclosed his plan so that uh, we won't become spiritually proud. That's one reason Paul has introduced all of this, and I want to come back to that. But first, I want to look briefly at the rest of this passage, and it has to be brief. In verses 28 and 29, Paul said something to the Roman church that they really needed to hear. And we need to hear it too as it applies to our situation. Let me read it and then we'll unpack it some. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, that is the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as far as the election is concerned, they are loved on the account of the patriarchs for God's gifts and his callings are irrevocable. Do you understand what that's saying? We're being told that even though the Jews were opposing the church, that they were enemies to them, that they, the Jewish people, were still God's chosen people. The Jews turned from God. God never turned from them. And the Romans needed to know that. They needed to understand that. Their heart needed to be more like God's heart. They ought to care about the Jew too. They ought to long for their salvation and their restoration too. If they were to be children of God that they claimed to be, how could they ever turn their back on his chosen people? And we should ask then... How does that apply to us? Oh, yes, we ought to long for the restoration of Israel as the people of God. We ought to pray for them. We ought to work for them. But they're not the only ones that God has chosen, are they? Did not God choose the world when he sent his son? Did he not send his son, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him? Do you think God has changed his mind? Do you think that when this group or that group opposes us or becomes our enemy, that God forgets his choice? Or or when they persecute us, surely then God will, will change his mind. When they start to kill us, he'll change his mind, won't he? I mean, is that what we think? Certainly what we're tempted. No, my friends, no. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He has not changed his mind. Instead, he has sent us to that same world which crucified his son. He has not changed his mind. He did warn us, you know. And he has promised to be with us all. The question is, what is our heart like? What's happening inside? Is our heart hardening, Or is it approaching that fullness that God intends? Now, I'm going to leave you with that question for now as we look quickly at the next two verses, which might seem at first glance, a little contrived, as though God were trying to be fair in his dealings with uh, Israel and the Gentiles. So let me again read them, and then we'll try to see them for what they are. Beginning in verse 30, just as you who were one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Now, I think a cursory reading of that would lead you to believe that God is trying to balance uh, life in the scales of human fairness. Like a grandmother who's trying to sort things out between quarreling grandchildren. Well, Johnny, Becky hits you because you took her toy, and if you give it back, she'll say she's sorry and tell you where she hid her hat things become a little clearer here, I think, when we realize that Paul is not so much telling us about God's reasoning here as describing for us reality. He's telling us, practically speaking, how things unfold. The Jewish disobedience meant that God would turn to the Gentiles to advance his kingdom, and the Gentiles would benefit from that. And then the Jews would recognize their sin, and they'd see God's mercy to the Gentile. And so the Jew will want what God has given to the Gentile, and they will benefit. It's just how reality is going to unfold. It's not our human understanding of fairness that God is interested in here in this text. God is concerned with something else, which is so much more much more important for our sakes, God is interested in mercy, intensely interested in mercy, as verse 32 makes clear, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Now, let's be clear here. It's not God who causes our disobedience. The blame for that lays at our own feet where it belongs. What God does is shut us up in that disobedience so we know that we're disobedient and so that we know we have sinned. Sin is so blind so deceitful that we somehow think that we are not so bad. We think we're okay, that we only kind of just stumbled a little. We could be so much worse. Oh, yeah, we could be so much worse, but we are not okay. We need God's mercy. And in his goodness, God holds our feet to the fire even hardening our heart of its already heart, until we get it, until we see our true state, until we see our need. Because it's not until we know our need that we'll ask for mercy. God wants to give us mercy. He wants to forgive us our sins, but he cannot do it until we know we need. Until we know we need God's mercy. And as all of this becomes clear, we begin to understand, don't we, the power of that mystery revealed, how it helps guard us against spiritual God is at work in our world. And he is no respecter of persons or kingdoms or nations or people. He marches on with one goal in mind to redeem the world. He created, he sustains, he orders all of creation. He chose Israel, giving them his truth and they advanced his kingdom in the world and when their hearts grew hard he set them aside and he takes up the gentiles to continue his march advancing his kingdom and it was he our great god who sent his son to take away our sin and as paul wrote to the romans this truth so filled his soul and heart again that he broke out in song, that doxology which closes the chapter, which we're going to look more more closely at another time, but we're going to read one verse of it now to give us the flavor. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths be fine beyond tracing it. God is high above us, but he reaches down to lift us up. In this text we've looked at this morning, there is a truth which emerges and becomes clear. We find God holy and righteous and pure and upright, working in, and around and through and over and in spite of our sin none of which deters him or keeps him from his purpose which is to bring good to us to bring us to a place where he can do good in us because he is not only holy and righteous and pure and upright but he has absolute love and his love is a love which redeems and sanctifies and glorifies, making us like his Son, holy and righteous and pure and upright and loving. Next to that, all human pride is at best, Joe. humility which breathes in life and breathes it out in awe of you and we abase ourselves in the dust and acknowledge freely that without Christ in our life we would be less than nothing but you sent us